This is Radio EcoShock with Alex Smith. You are about to meet someone extraordinary, Kathleen Dean Moore. I wasn't sure about her speech in Vancouver. There was something about morality, and that usually doesn't lead to much. But the title said, It's Wrong to Wreck the World. And I said, Yes. I haven't heard of Kathleen. Obviously, the room at Simon Fraser University downtown was much too large for the usual couple of dozen folks who turn up for these things. Wrong again. The room filled up completely. Others must know her work. Then I was hit with one of the most artful, heart-moving talks of the year. I'm a cynical old doomer, but she made me cry, carefully hidden, of course. Then she made me hope. Kathleen Dean Moore is a distinguished professor of philosophy at Oregon State University. She's an environmental philosopher and nature writer, author of many books. She recently co-edited the book, Moral Ground, Ethical Action for a Planet in Peril. I'm not going to say more. By the end of this program, you will know her well and be glad you met. Here is Kathleen Dean Moore. A best of Radio EcoShock replay. I want to particularly thank Pat Gallagher and Laurie Wood and the Center here for inviting me out from Oregon and for all of you for coming out tonight. You know, it's a gorgeous place you've got here. And any excuse I have to come up here is one that I would very readily welcome. We used to have these window blinds open, and the view across that water is unbelievable. And you people who live here make me realize that that you're probably in the same sort of situation that I am, and, and I describe it by quoting E.B. White, who is a, an essayist, was an essayist for The New Yorker. He said, I arise in the morning torn between a desire to save the world and the desire to savor it. He says, that makes it hard to plan the day. <laughs> I have the same sort of a problem, you know, and I know it's true that unless you savor the world, unless you love it, unless you celebrate it, then you're not going to feel moved to try to save it. But unless you try to take some steps to save it, then obviously there's not going to be much left to savor. So we really are going to have to be doing both of these things. It's a problem that's particularly acute uh, when I come before you trying to decide whether we should do the savoring or the saving. And the solution I came up with was to begin with a celebration of the natural world and to use that as an entry point then into a discussion about what our obligations are, following Aldo Leopold who said, sing our love for the land and our obligations to it. And I don't think it escapes anyone how quickly obligation follows on the heels of love. So let me begin, if I may, with essay that's from my book, The Pine Island Paradox. It's called The Augmented Fourth. It's a three-and-a-half-minute essay. I have a short attention span. This is called The Augmented Fourth. Rain drummed on the hatches and splashed off the decks, but still we could make out the sound of a wolf howling from the cliffs over the cove where we dropped anchor. There was only one wolf, although we listened carefully to be sure. Nothing answered the wolf's call. Frank and I listened as the wolf must have listened, the question probing the clouds and damping out in the forest, the draperies of lichens and drooping hemlock boughs. But the only response was rain pounding, then rivering down my sleeves and soaking my gloves. I knelt to raise the anchor so we could drift closer to the cliff. I knew the song the wolf sang. The first two tones made an augmented fourth, a dissonant interval like the first two notes of Maria in West Side Story. It's an interval, a musical interval of yearning, of hope. It's the sound of human longing. 
When my colleague, a concert pianist, explained the augmented fourth, she brought both hands together in front of her body, palms skyward, fingers spread, and lifted the air. For her, words are not enough to describe this interval. This is a sound that floods the soul, she said, and she strained forward from the waist. The augmented fourth is a heartbreaking interval. Dissonance that comes so close to consonance pulls itself so close, but never reaches the perfect fifth that's almost within its grasp. She leaned over the keyboard and flooded the room with music made of the unfinished intervals, harmonies that yearn towards resolution but never reach a place of peace. And there I was in that tide-dragged island wilderness, on my knees, trying to understand the pull of those same two notes. There is no darker night than a night of rain on an island. Frank played his flashlight beam over the inlet to make sure the boat was still resting at anchor. I sat on an overturned bucket under a tarp stretched between hemlocks. Under my boots, the ground was springy, a thick layer of moss on a century of hemlock needles. Water bounced off the stems of highbush cranberries and blueberries and salal, dripped from every stray end of rope, runnelled the length of hemlock roots. I sat hunched, forearms resting on knees, and drank whiskey closely rationed. Somewhere, people are laughing in brightly lit places that smell of books and coffee. Families were sitting down to dinner somewhere, and fishermen were making fast their boats in harbors, calling out to friends as they hoisted their gear bags to their shoulders and turned towards home. But there were no other people here, and not another point of light for 50 miles in all directions. Tonight, just our little family, and in my flashlight beam, a narrow strip of island rapidly sinking into a flooding tide. A loud, mournful wail. I was on my feet, reaching for binoculars. But of course there was nothing to see in the darkness. It sounded again, a musical arch of three tones. I groped to the edge of the island, and there was the call again. The wail of a common loon. Waking at night, the loon might have found itself suddenly alone, or in the storm lost sight of its mate. It called again with frantic urgency, and that... Again was the wild, heartbreaking sound of the augmented fourth. I yanked off my hood and strained forward, trying so hard to hear an answering call. What I heard was water on water and the slosh of tide on rock. I should have felt a loneliness close to despair there, in the night, in the rain, a thousand miles from home. What I felt instead was uncommon joy. What was there to long for when all I wanted was what I suddenly had, to be fully part of the night, joined by a song, by a simple shared song to the loon, to the wolf, to the keening of all humankind, all of us together in this one infinite night, all of us floating in the same darkness, each of us as we howl our loneliness, finding that we're not alone after all. So that's the kind of work that I do as a writer. But about three years ago, I decided that that was not enough. It was not nearly enough. It wasn't even close. I decided it's not enough to try to celebrate frog song or the, the wailing of a loon as the frog species disappear one by one. And I can't write about the music of the marshes as the marshes are buried under the parking lots of convenience stores. And it's not enough to write as well as I can, as evocatively as I can, about salmon spawning and dying when those beautiful wild fish are not coming back in the numbers that we want. And it isn't enough for me to love my little grandchildren and let their world drift away. 
the last straw was when I was up here visiting Jonathan, and I was putting his little child, Zoe, to bed. And we had been reading Owl Moon. Do you know the little story about a girl and her father who go out hooting for owls? And we had turned off the light, and we were lying there in the darkness, and she was presumably going to sleep. Pretty soon I heard this little soft hooting, and then the little giggles and some more hooting, and more giggles and hooting and giggles, and suddenly I laughed, and we both were laughing and hooting, and I said, that's it. It's over. It's done for. I'm not going to do anything more in my professional life that doesn't make the world safe for the hooting of owls and the laughter of little children. That's the life I've been trying to lead. So now to the titles of philosopher, which I am and a nature writer, I have to add ferocious grandmother. If we love the good earth, we have to save it. We don't have any choice. And as you all know, we have very little time. So how did it come to this? Honestly, what a question. It's a long story. 4.6 billion years old story. Our era... The Cenozoic, this last, say, 65 million years, has been a lyrical period in Earth's history. It's been a time where the world came into its full flowering. Trees and songbirds and flowering plants and coral reefs in these great northwest forests. And then, on Earth, and maybe only on Earth, the emergence of consciousness, conscience, and imagination we are the beings in the universe, and maybe the only beings in the universe, I don't know, but we are in the, the beings in the universe through whom the universe explores its own meaning. We are the beings through whom the earth turns back on itself and admires its own beauty. We are the celebrants of the universe. It's an extraordinary responsibility. But how, how extraordinary it is then that now... We have in our generation, Thomas Berry writes this, we have in our generation done what no previous generation has done because they didn't have the technological power and what no following generation will be able to do because the world will never again be so beautiful and rich in life and abundant. We didn't have to treat the world the way we did, but that was our choice. Now, let's be honest that self-inflicted environmental catastrophe has taken down many civilizations before ours. The earth has many, many stories of people who wrecked their habitats and so wrecked their own chances. This one's different. It's different because this time the self-inflicted environmental catastrophe is going to take down the hydrological cycles, the ocean chemistry, the biodiversity, the relative climate stability, all the things that allowed the life as we know it and love it to evolve on the planet. So I brought a list with me of the things that we have been doing. But, you know, I'm looking at you and I'm thinking, you don't need my depressing and dismaying list of all the signs of change. You know that climate change is real. It's upon us. You're Canadians. I mean, you've got the Northwest Passage opening on your northern border, right? Just if it had been open 400 years ago, we wouldn't have had all those people traipsing across North America looking for some way across. So we've got fantastic changes happening, and, and you're witness to so many of them. I used to say, in this century, I would come before my students and say, in this century, we will choose which direction the world goes next. Whether we live and bequeath our children a world that is reinvented, or whether we leave them a world that is sliding towards some sort of decline and some degradation and despair that we cannot even imagine. And then I started to say, in our lifetimes. And then I had to start saying, in 10 years. And now... If you listen to NASA scientist James Hansen, 
He says, if we get it done in six years, we can do it. He said that two years ago. It's extraordinary to find ourselves in this time, and it's totally weird. What I think is weird is the way life goes on. You'd think we wouldn't be talking about anything else. You'd think we would gather on the street corners and talk about it with our voices lowered so our children weren't frightened. Derek Jensen, an essayist in the United States, says it this way. He says, okay, so, everybody, imagine there's aliens who come down, and the spacecraft lands on Earth, and the little green beings come popping out, and they set about doing such things as pouring poisons into the rivers and killing one out of every ten species of wild organism and scraping the top off the land and shipping it westward in trains a mile and a half long and lacing agricultural fields with poisons and seeding cancers in the plastics that we use with our children and emptying our aquifers and making our rivers undrinkable, torching our forests, turning our democracy over to the tender mercies of the corporations who sometimes act like aliens themselves, injecting carbon dioxide into the air until even the climate turns on us, taking everything for themselves and leaving nothing for us or our children. The question is, if these aliens came down and did this to us, what would we do? Um, I don't know. But I think we would do something more than change out our light bulbs and call it good. And I don't think we would wait until we had absolute scientific evidence that this was harmful. And I honestly don't think that we would convene the Supreme Court to call them persons and then give them all our money. We would have the greatest mobilization the world has ever seen, would we not? To save our planet for our children from these beings who were taking it all. Uh, I, I, don't, I haven't done anywhere near enough either. And, and whatever we're doing, it's not good enough. And that's the premise of what I want to say tonight, is that climate change is a scientific issue. It's going to take the very best science we can muster. Climate change is a technological issue. We're going to have to apply our very best technological minds to solutions for alternative sources of fuel, for example. It's an economic issue. We're going to really have to think about what wealth is and what it means to be well-off and how we can attain that. But I want to say that it's fundamentally a moral issue, and it calls for a moral response. I'll be quite straightforward with what I believe. I believe that it's not just stupid, but it's wrong to take what we need from the world to support our comfortable and profligate lives and to leave for the future a ransacked and dangerously unstable world. I don't think that's worthy of us as moral beings. To let it all slip away through indifference or because we're too busy or because, you know, we've got to get the kids to a soccer game, to let it slip away the billions of years it takes to grow the, the song in a frog's throat or the millions of years it takes to grow the purple stripe in the throat of a lily, to let it all slip away, that's a terrible thing. And when to enrich a few lucky people, powerful fossil fuel interests threaten to disrupt forever the planetary cycles that support all the lives on Earth? That's wrongdoing on a cosmic scale. What I believe is that we have an affirmative moral duty, individual and collective, to leave a world that's as rich in possibilities as the world that was left to us. That's what I believe. And I believe that if we affirm these principles and that if we think about what the scientists are telling us about what's going to be happening next, that we can't escape our moral responsibilities to act and still call ourselves 
moral beings. So what I'm calling for is calling for a national discourse about our moral responsibilities in the face of environmental degradation, particularly climate change. I'm calling for, for conversation, at least, about what our obligations are and what the basis of those obligations is. Those discussions have gone missing from the public discourse, and I think that's a disaster. And let me show you why. Scientists have done this enormously wonderful job, this heroic job. I, I praise the scientists for their heroism in standing up and in standing together and in telling us that climate change is real and dangerous and that it has begun. What happened? Nothing much. So scientists, bless their hearts, got more data, wrote more grants, gave more talks, honed their skills in communication, again and again saying, here's what's happening, people. They had great faith in the power of human understanding. The presumption, I think, that they have is that if people only knew, if people only knew, then they would take action. But that is a logical fallacy, and I want to show you why. This is Radio EcoShock. We're listening to an inspiring speech by philosopher and nature writer Kathleen Dean Moore. Her topic is what we can do for a planet in trouble. always embarrassed when I come to a syllogism, but I guess if you invite a philosopher, that's what you're going to have to get. So a syllogism is an argument that has three premises. Um, this is the practical moral syllogism. It's characterized by its conclusion. The conclusion is a statement about what we ought to do. Any argument that concludes about what with a statement of what we ought to do is going to have to have two premises. The first one is empirical. It's factual. It's usually based on Scientific evidence, it's the context for the decision. This is the way the world is. This is the way the world will be if we continue on this path. But facts alone can't tell you what to do. For that, you need a second premise. The second premise is, in a, is a normative. That is, it has norms encoded in it. It's a value statement. What is better? What is just? What is worthy of us? What, is, uh, what should we aspire to? What should we affirm? What should we value? If you know the way the world is, and if you know the way the world ought to be, then you can come to some conclusion about what you ought to do. So that's the very pattern of reasoning that we use when we make any decisions about, about policy. Now, our President Obama used to be really good at that. I don't know what has happened. But he used to be really good at articulating full practical moral syllogisms. For example, he was talking about stem cell research. And he said, scientists tell us that stem cell research has the potential for improving people's health and their lives. Premise one. Premise two. My mother always told me if you can help somebody, you should. The moral premise. Conclusion, we ought to relax the controls and do more work on stem cell research. You get the pattern. Well, here it is. No surprise to you. If we do not act immediately, anthropogenic environmental changes will bring serious harms to the future. That's the empirical one. Here comes the value. It's wrong to harm the future. Therefore, we have a moral obligation to act to avert that harm. Now, what I would love and what I've set out to do is to create a moral consensus to match the scientific consensus. In other words, I'd like to see, I'd like to see as much energy and evidence put into the second premise as we have put into the first because I do believe that if we understand what the scientists are telling us and we know what we really care about, we will be able to understand that we have no choice but to act and to act strongly and to act soon. 
So where does the work of the second premise happen? Well, in churches, in families, around dinner tables, where do we talk about what we value? It's the work of art. It's the work of narrative, poems, stories, novels. It's the work of poetry and philosophy and religion and civil discourse. But the traditional place for the discourse of the second premise is the university. And one of the things that I think we're going to need to do as people from universities or connected with universities is to make sure that every time we talk to students about premise number one, we give them a chance to talk about premise number two. Otherwise, we leave them absolutely adrift. So what I set out to do is to nurture this discourse about enduring human values. Um, People say, oh, get real. Politics are moved by economic self-interest and the realities of the marketplace. Change is created by technology. Nothing happens as a result of people's moral vision. Well, I think that's just a misreading of history. And I'm dreadfully embarrassed that my examples are all from the United States. But I'm hoping that you have examples from Canada that would serve as well. Um, When we have made a change that happened quickly, that was dramatic, where society turned on a dime, it was often in in response to a rising wave of moral affirmation. So you take the um, forces that created the American Revolution. We hold these truths to be self-evident. Those weren't truths about technology. They weren't truths about economics. They were great principles about human equality and freedom, great principles about human rights. Uh, The emancipation of the slaves, a terrible long time coming, and certainly entangled with economic issues. But finally, based on this notion that it is indecent to treat human beings as slaves. Uh, The Civil Rights March was a rose on a, a wave of affirmation of the rights of all people, the equal rights of all people. When Martin Luther King stood up and said, I have a dream, he wasn't talking about iPhones. He was talking about principles of moral justice. So again and again, we see that that moral reasons do have power to change people's actions. And what I'm calling for is a summoning of that power to motivate us to move on climate change. The question I'll have to tell you honestly, the question that keeps me awake at night, is whether we can save ourselves without that same moral affirmation of the rights of future generations and our duties of compassion and justice. So let's talk, shall we, about that moral affirmation. This is my newest book, Moral Ground, Ethical Action for a Planet in Peril. My colleague, Michael Nelson, and I, in seeking for a moral consensus to match the scientific consensus, asked 125 of the world's moral leaders the same question. We said, you have six weeks. Please respond in 2,000 words or less. Do we have a moral obligation to the future to leave a world as rich in possibilities as our own? Well, the Dalai Lama, Desmond Tutu, Barbara Kingsolver, your very own Sheila Watt Cloutier, E.O. Wilson, religious leaders, writers, politicians, scientists, we gathered their responses and we put them together in this book. And our idea here is to show what people say, these moral leaders from around the world, about our obligations to the future. So let me share, if I may, some of the things that we learned from this, from this project. One moral message sounds forth loud and clear from almost every writer, and that is that as a world, we are undergoing a dramatic, fundamental change, paradigm shift in our worldview. Philosophers say there are really only three questions worth asking. What is the world? 
what is the place of a human being in the world? How then shall I live? A person's answers to those three questions is their worldview, and their worldview then shapes their response to moral challenges. So I'm, what, we, what we were saying is that the answers to those questions have fundamentally changed. And it used to be, within our lifetimes, that the people thought that you could represent the relationship between human beings and the natural world with a diagram that looks like this. That's us up there, that star. The world is dualistic. We are separate from, superior to the rest of creation, which exists in order to support our brilliance. Okay? That the earth was created for us alone, and it drew all its value from its usefulness to us. And that we didn't have any obligations to that greenery, except as it served ourselves, as an individual or a species. Well, scientists and religions all around the world are telling us that that view is deeply dangerous and desperately wrong. That experiment in self-aggrandizement, that experiment in hubris is over and the results are in. You can't think that way about who humans are in the world and continue to prosper as a people over a very great long time. What we are instead, ecologists tell us, are members of this intricate and delicately balanced system of living and dying that's created a richness of life that's greater than the world has ever seen. So do you see where we are? You see that black dot? Although Leopold, I keep quoting him, he says again, the first premise of any ethic is that the individual is a member of a community of interdependent parts, and that includes plants and animals and collectively the land. The point being that the ecologists have a very different worldview that they're urging upon us, and it is one of interdependence and interconnection and uh, resilience, maybe, and finitude. And that the question for for the ethicists, then, is can we imagine new forms of human goodness that can emerge from that picture of who we are? If this is who we are, what does it mean to be a good person? So what we're looking for is an ethic that not only acknowledges but actually emulates the ways that life thrives on earth. How do we act? How do we act when we truly understand that we're members of a community on earth that's interconnected and interdependent and resilient and finite? And can we create an alliance between ethics and ecology that reinvents human beings, that reinvents an ethic that's of the earth rather than an ethic that is against it? This has been my work recently, and we have brought together an interdisciplinary group that has tried to draft that ethic. And if you're interested in looking it up, we call it the Blue River Declaration. It's all over the web. But I don't want to go go into that now. I I want to keep on with climate change. And I want to tell you that I have a wonderful friend, a musician, who, um, Libby Roderick, maybe you know her, her work, maybe you know the song, How Can Anyone? I said, Libby, you know what the climate change movement needs? It needs an anthem. It needs something that, that really expresses this. Can you write me a song that tells me this in the context of the climate change challenges? So she did. Now, I have it, and you'll be the very first people to have heard it. It's, a, it's raw. It's, only, it's her voice in a cello. Uh, she doesn't have any harmonies in it or anything, so you'll have to just understand that it's just she just bopped into a, a recording studio. But I thought you might like to hear what she says in response to the challenge to try to express what it means to be a good person in a situation that we face with that description of our place in the world. We'll be right back with more from Kathleen Dean Moore on Radio EcoShock, saying it's wrong to wreck the world. Here is singer Libby Roderick with 
The Lifeboats Are Burning. What do you do when the life rafts are burning and your babies are inside the boat? Where do you turn when the waters are churning and you're desperate to learn how to float? How do you pray when your prayers go unanswered and each crier feels so alone? What do you do when the lifeboats are burning? You turn, 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 turn to each other, reach for each other, take one another by the hand. We'll form a life raft, a human life raft, and we'll swim towards land. If we make it, Start over If we don't, we go down together One for all forever You're listening to EcoShock Radio For the world I'm Alex Smith Get it all at our website EcoShock.org A best of Radio EcoShock Replay iceberg is looming and the ship isn't turning away How can you be heard when the warning bell's booming that the band just continues to play Where do you turn when the engines catch fire and the life rafts are starting to burn What do you do when the lifeboats are burning Turn, turn, turn Turn to each other Reach for each other Take one another by the hand We'll form a life raft A human life raft And we'll swim towards land If we make it We'll start over If we don't We go down together One for all All forever This is Radio EcoShock. You are listening to Professor Kathleen Dean Moore speaking at Simon Fraser University in Vancouver on March 20, 2012. The title of the talk is It's Wrong to Wreck the World, Climate Change and the Moral Obligation to the Future. This recording is by Alex Smith. 
Why is it wrong to wreck the world? Why must we, must we change our usual ways in order to save the world that is so beautiful and so life-sustaining? What are the moral principles that will guide us in that work? What is this new dream of a good human being? Do we have an obligation to the future? Here is what these people we asked wrote to us, and we categorized their answers into 14 different reasons, Um, the idea being that we're not looking for the one reason to act. We're looking for reasons that will speak to anyone who comes to us with any worldview. Do we have an obligation to the future? Yes, for the sake of the children and for the sake of the earth itself. Yes, for the full expression of human virtue. Yes, because all flourishing is mutual. Because compassion requires it. Because the world is beautiful. Yes, we have an obligation to honor the rights of future generations of all species and to prevent the violation of human rights. Yes, because our moral integrity requires it. Yes, for the survival of humankind and for the sake of all forms of life on the planet. Yes, to honor our duties of gratitude. Yes, for the stewardship of God's creation. Yes, because justice demands it and because we love the world. And if that doesn't cut it, then there are always issues of national security. (laughs) So these are the reasons that we collected in the beautiful essays that came, and as a result of that, I thought that um, in the time that I have, I would pick out four of these reasons and discuss them in a little bit more um, detail. The ones that I picked out may not be the ones to speak to you, But uh, they are the ones that particularly called to me. So um, let's talk first about this one. Do we have an obligation to the future? Yes, for the sake of the children. And you'll, you'll recognize the same syllogism. If we have a moral obligation to protect the children, and if environmental degradation is manifestly harmful to them, then we have an obligation to expend extraordinary effort to end those harms and redress the wrongs that we have done. What I want to just take just a moment for you to notice is how extraordinarily dangerous that is, that that argument is. That argument is valid, and that means that if if the premises are true, the conclusion must be true as well. So the only way a person can escape that conclusion is by denying the truth of one of the premises. This is basic logic. So if a person had an interest in not reducing or eliminating the causes of climate change, if they had, for example, a financial interest in selling all the fossil fuels they could mine, what are they going to do to deny that conclusion? They can't say, heck with the kids. Can they? They can't say, no, I don't believe we have an obligation to children. Of course we have an obligation to children. They're going to have to deny the first premise. They're going to have to deny the facts. So it's no wonder that we have all the climate deniers out there saying, I don't believe the science, I don't think it's coming, if it's coming, I don't think we caused it, and if we caused it, I don't think it's going to hurt anything. It might even make it easier for us to grow asparagus. Okay? You see, the logic that, that that energizes the deniers is right here in front of you. Because you can't deny these moral premises we're talking about, they are commonly held. You have to then go after the science. If you want to deny the conclusion. Okay, that's not what I wanted to talk about. I wanted to talk about that argument that we are harming children even even as we believe we're acting to help them. A man at one of these talks came straight up to me. He was huge. I was looking straight at his second button here. And he said, I don't care about climate change. I don't care about ethics. All I care about is my daughter. And I'm going to make as much money as I can so that my daughter has the very best life and as safe as possible as long as she shall live. And I go, 
it's not going to work. <laughs> you know, what we're doing to the children is we try to protect them. It's a tragic irony that as we amass material wealth in the name of our children's future, we're taking away the material basis of their future and leaving them a ransacked world to live in. But it doesn't bother me what we're doing to the privileged children nearly as much as it bothers me what we're doing to children who are not privileged. And that's not just ironic. That's awful. That children who are never even going to know the short-term benefits of misusing fossil fuels are the ones who are going to feel it, suffer as the seas rise, as the fires scorch the cropland, as diseases spread north, as famine returns to lands that had been abundant. And I believe that that kind of damage is a deliberate theft from the children. It, it is a preventable child abuse. Let me read to you from uh, a 12-year-old girl. Her name is Severin Suzuki, a Canadian who was speaking at the Rio Convention, and I will read you just a few sentences from what she wrote or, or read to them. At school, even in kindergarten, you teach us how to behave in the world. You teach us not to fight, to work things out, to respect others, to clean up our mess. Then why do you go out and do the things you tell us not to do? We are your children. You are deciding what kind of world we're growing up in. Parents should be able to comfort their children by saying, everything's going to be all right. It's not the end of the world. I don't think you can say that to us anymore. My dad always says, you are what you do, not what you say. Well, what you do makes me cry at night. When you edit a book like this, one of the wonderful things is that you can put yourself in it. <laughs> and uh, I could write anything I wanted for this book, and I decided I wanted to write for this argument. I wanted to write that we have obligations for the sake of the children. And so may I read that? It's also a short little oh, three-and-a-half-minute essay. It's called The Call to Forgiveness at the End of the Day. And what I need to tell you is that the dateline for this essay is May 25th, 2025. So you see what I'm doing? I'm, I'm, in, I'm imagining myself 15 years in the future looking back on, on what has transpired in this intervening time. Okay. All those years, the Swainson's thrushes were the first to call in the mornings. That's when I would take a cup of tea and walk into the meadow. Swallows sat on the highest perches, whispering as they waited for light to stream onto the pond. For years, there were flocks of goldfinches. After my husband and I poisoned the bull thistles on the far side of the pond, the goldfinches perched in the willows. The garbage truck backed down the lane, beeping its backup call, making the frogs sing, even in the day. Oh, there was music in the mornings all those years. In the overture to the day, each bird added its call until the morning was an ecstasy of music that faded only when the diesel pumps kicked on to pull water from the stream. Evenings were glorious, too. Just as the sun set, little brown bats began to fly. If a bat swooped close, I'd heard its tiny sonar chirps just at the highest reach of my hearing. Frogs sang and sang, but not like bats or birds, like violins, violin strings just touched by the bow. They sang all evening thousands of violins and into the night. They sang while crows flew into the oaks and settled their wings, while garter snakes, their stomachs extended with frogs, crawled finally under the fallen bark of the oaks and stretched their lengths against cold ground. I don't know how many frogs there were in the pond then, thousands, tens of thousands. When the eggs hatched, there were tadpoles. I have seen the shallow edge of the pond black with wiggling tadpoles. There were that many, each with a song growing inside it. In the years when the frog choruses began to fade, scientists said it was a fungus. Or maybe bullfrogs were eating the tadpoles. No one knew what to do. 
When the bats stopped coming, they said that was a fungus too. When the goldfinches came in pairs, not flocks, we told each other the flocks must be feeding in a neighbor's field. No one could guess where the thrushes had gone. The fields were as empty as the perfect emptiness of a bell, the perfectly shaped absence ringing the angelus, the evening song, the call for forgiveness at the end of the day. As it happened, that was the spring when our granddaughter was born. I brought her to the pond so she could feel the comfort I had known there for so many years. Killdeer waddled in the mud by the shore, but even then, not so many as before. By then, the pond had sunk into its warm, weedy places, leaving an expanse of cracked earth. I held my granddaughter in my arms and sang to her then, an old lullaby that made her soften like wax in the flame, molding her little body to my bones. Hush don't you cry. Go to sleep, you little baby. She fell asleep in my arms, unafraid. I will tell you, I was so afraid. Poets warned us, writing of the heartbreaking beauty that will remain when there is no heart to break for it. But what if it's worse than that? What if it's the heartbroken children who remain in a world without beauty? How will they find solace in a world without wild music? How will they thrive without green hills edged with oaks? How will they forgive us for letting frog songs slip away? It isn't enough to love a child and wish her well. It isn't enough to open my heart to a bird-graced morning. Can I claim to love a morning if I don't protect what creates its beauty? Can I claim to love a child if I don't use all the power of my beating heart to preserve a world that nourishes children's joy? Loving is not a kind of la-di-da. Loving is a sacred trust. To love is to affirm the absolute worth of what you love and to pledge your life to its thriving, to protect it fiercely and faithfully for all time. My husband and I were there when the last salmon died in the stream, although we didn't know it then. We came upon her in the creek. Her flank was torn and moldy. The music she made was the riffle of rib bones raking water, then no sound at all as her body settled to the bottom of the pool. But once we had known the music of salmon moving upstream, when the streams were full of salmon, crows called again and again, and seagulls coughed on the gravel bars, orioles sang their heads thrown back with singing, eagles clattered, water lifted and splashed, swept by strong gray tails, and pebbles rolled downstream. It was the crashing coda, the slam and the buzz and the gull scream. Ring the angelus for the salmon and the swallows. Ring the bells for frogs floating in bent reeds. Ring the bells for all of us who did not save the song. Mother of God, ring the bells for every sacred emptiness. Let them echo in the silence at the end of the day. Forgiveness is too much to ask. I would pray for only this, that our granddaughter would hear again the little lick of music, that grace note toward the end of a meadowlark's song. Meadowlarks. There were meadowlarks. They sang like angels in the morning. We all know that our well-being is threatened by climate change. Let's move on to this notion that we have to act on climate change in order to um, honor basic human rights. You know, if people have rights to life and liberty and the pursuit of happiness, then the carbon-spewing nations of the world are embarked on the greatest violation of human rights the world has ever seen uprooted from their homes, exposed to new disease vectors on the wrong end of disruptive food chains. It's a systematic denial of human rights. By whom? 
by the rich nations of the world and the, and the fuel smoke-spewing nations of the world. To what end? <laughs> For the continuation of wasteful and pointless consumption of material goods. And it's not just a violation of rights. It's an injustice because the people who are suffering and are going to suffer the most are not the ones who are enjoying the benefits of the profligate use of the fuels, at least in the short term. They're the ones who are suffering until it engulfs us all, and that's not fair. And the thing that bothers me, that really catches me in the craw, is that the ones who are going to suffer the most are the ones who cannot speak in their own defense. They need us. They are calling to us to speak in their defense. Who are these silents? They're future people who have no way of calling to us. They're the plants and the animals and the ecosystems who are calling to us. They are marginalized people everywhere, economically marginalized, geographically marginalized, educationally marginalized people, and they are our children. I'm Alex Smith. I recorded this speech in Vancouver for Radio EcoShock. The title is, It's Wrong to Wreck the World, Climate Change and the Moral Obligation to the Future. Here is Kathleen Dean Moore. These are the ones who are going to have to make a life in whatever's left of the world after we're done plundering it. And let me just quickly uh, reference um, Sheila Watt-Cloutier, the uh, former head of the Inuit Superpolar Council, who wrote, what we are doing here, their petition to the International Human Rights Council, what we're doing here is we are defending our right to culture, our right to lands traditionally used and occupied, our right to health, our right to physical security, our right to our own means of subsistence, and our rights to residence and movement. And as our culture is based on the cold, the ice and snow, we are, in essence, defending our right to be cold. So this is the fourth of the four that I wanted to talk about because our integrity demands us. And I want to talk about integrity, but first I want to talk about hope. And I want to check in with you here. If... Um, you were asked to rate yourself on this scale, where zero means we have no chance of preventing climate change and the catastrophes that will follow it. Or 10, you know, <laughs> I sleep well at night. We can do this. We're doing it. Where are you? If you would think a minute of that number. It's really a problem, this thing about hope. Because it's true. Yeah, it's true that our options are limited and that our cities are, are disgracefully designed when it comes to using fuel and that destructive ways of living are very skillfully linked to um, tangles of profit and power in the world and we don't have very much time. Even the most conscientious person, the most hopeful person, is going to have trouble making significant change. And Gus Speth, the former dean at the Yale Law School, says all we have to do to destroy the planet's climate and ecosystem and leave a ruined world to our children and grandchildren is to keep doing exactly what we are doing today. This is a problem. And here's the problem. Well, there's lots of problems. The one I want to talk about in particular is this, that, that we are utilitarians. That is to say, we judge the rightness or wrongness of our acts by their consequences. When we think we cannot have good consequences to our acts, we completely abandon morality. So we have a situ we've created a situation where, on the one hand, you could, have, you could be hopeful, but if you lose hope, you fall into this abyss, which is despair, which is the abdication of moral responsibility. What I want to point out to you is that that also is a fallacy. That's a fallacy of false dichotomy, because between hope and despair is this very broad landscape, and we call that integrity. Integrity, acting in the way you believe in, doing what's right because you believe it's right, finding a way that your actions and your values integrate, and that's, I think, is what we're called to do in these very 
very dangerous time. I'd like to talk about that then in terms of what does it mean in particular? It's always the question that always arises, particularly with my students. What does that mean in particular? How should we go forward? Let me briefly mention just two, two things that seem to me to be, to be important to say. And one is that we can choose to refuse to allow ourselves to be used as instruments of destruction. This is part of what integrity means. It means to say, I am not going to allow you to use me to wreck the world. I refuse to do what I don't believe in. I refuse to drive a car I don't believe in. I refuse to eat food I don't believe in. I refuse to do a job I don't believe in. I, I will not make um, thoughtless decisions about what I invest in. I will not make thoughtless decisions about what I buy or what I praise. I won't make thoughtless decisions about what I value. I will not volunteer to be a foot soldier in the corporate destruction of the world that I love. And I will not allow myself to be used as a consumer rather than to treat myself as a moral agent. I am not a consumer. I do consume, but primarily I'm a moral agent and I make my own decisions. I will not enrich the people who disdain me. That, I think, is what we've got to do first. I'm not kidding about people who disdain us. There's this big mobile oil ad. Maybe you've seen it. shows the cloud-splashed earth, and underneath it says, Mother Earth is a tough old gal. You've seen that one? I wrote back to them, and I said, You know, if the earth were your mother, she would grab you in one rocky hand and hold you underwater till you no longer bubbled. <laughs> Imagine. So we can, we can, I believe, we can draw down atmospheric carbon dioxide to livable levels. But we can't do it until we can draw down the power of those who are enriched by destroying the conditions of human and ecological thriving. And we're not going to draw down that power or even regulate it until we find a way to end the futures market in politicians. I don't know what's happening in Canada, but I can tell you that in the United States, millions and millions and millions of dollars are being invested in campaigns to elect people who will allow a corporate. So this is a call to conscientious objection. People said to the Vietnam War, hell no, I don't believe in that war, I'm not going to fight it. Can we say the same to an unjust and a far more disastrous economic system? That's step one. That's step one, I think, of the negative part of what, um, what we are called to do. Step two is the positive part, of course, and that is that we can align our values. We can align our values with our actions. Refusal's not enough, and everybody knows it. We're looking for something more, something that's not so grief-stricken. Now, I, I advise people not to leave their grief behind. Belief is, grief is a very powerful thing. And I love what your beautiful songwriter Leonard Cohen said when he said, yes. We live with broken hearts in a broken world, but that's no alibi for anything. We must sing a broken-hearted hallelujah. So let us turn to the joy. Because the other part of integrity is to make our lives into works of art that express our deepest values. And as we live with integrity, we can imagine and we can bring into being new ways of living on the land that are bright with art and imagination and that are nested into families and communities, where we become part of communities of caring that are grateful and joyous. Let me just close then uh, by reading one last short essay, and this is, what I, this is my response to my students. You recognize Mount St. Helens? Okay, Washington State volcano that blew up in 1980. This is um, basically built about that. It's called Refugia of the Imagination. This also is three minutes. Those scientists were so wrong back in 1980. 
When they climb from the helicopters holding handkerchiefs over their faces to filter ash from the Mount St. Helens eruption, they did not think they would live long enough to see life restored to the blast zone. Every tree was burned and ruined, every ridgeline buried in ash, every stream clogged with broken limbs and landslides. If anything would grow here again, they thought, its seed would have to drift in from the edges of the devastation long, dry miles across a plain of cinders and ash. The scientists could imagine that, spiders drifting on silk threads over the rubble plain, a single seed spinning into the shade of a pumice stone. It was harder to imagine the time required for flourishing to return to the mountain, all the dusty centuries. But here they are. On the mountain, only 30 years later, these same scientists are on their knees, running their hands over beds of moss below lupin in lavish purple bloom. Tracks of mice and fox etch a muddy stream bank. What the scientists know now, but didn't understand then, is that when the mountain blasted ash and rock across the landscape, the devastation never touched some small places hidden in the lee of rocks and trees. Here, a bed of moss and deer fern under a rotting log. There, under a boulder, a patch of pearly everlasting in the tunnel to a vole's nest. Between stones and a buried stream, a slick of algae and clustered dragonfly eggs. Refugia, they call them, small places of safety where life endures. From the micro-environments of the refugia, mice and toads emerge blinking onto the blasted plain. From thousand, ten thousand, maybe countless small places of enduring life, meadows return to the mountain. I have seen this happen. I have wandered the edge of vernal pools with ecologists brought to unscientific tears by the song of meadowlarks in these places. So I'm careful when I talk to my students. They have been taught, as they deserve to be, that the fossil-fueled industrial growth economy has brought the world to the edge of catastrophe. They understand the decimation of plant and animal species, the growing deserts and spreading famine. If it's true that we can't destroy our habitats without destroying our lives, as Rachel Carson said, and if it's true that we are in the process of laying waste to the planet, then our ways of living will come to an end, some way or another, sooner or later, gradually or catastrophically, and some new way of life will begin. What are we supposed to do, students ask me. How can we do any good when the job is nothing less than saving the world? These are terrifying questions for an old professor, and it has taken me some months to think of what to say. I have decided to tell them about the volcano. I tell them about the rotted stump that shelled spider eggs, about a cupped rock that saved a fern. If destructive forces are building under our lives, then our work in this time and place, I tell them, is not to stop the mountain from cracking apart. No one can do this. But now, to create small refugia of the imagination to reseed the ashy plain. Refugia, places where new ideas are sheltered and encouraged to grow. Even now, we can create small pockets of flourishing, and we can make ourselves into overhanging rock ledges to protect their life, so that the full measure of possibility can spread and reseed the world. It doesn't matter what it is, I tell my students, or how small. If it's generous to life, imagine it into existence. Create a bicycle cooperative, a seed-sharing community, a wildlife sanctuary on the hill below the church. Plant native grass. Imagine water pumps. Dig a community garden in the parking lot. Study corn. Learn to cook with the full power of the sun at noon. We don't have to start from scratch. We can restore pockets of flourishing lifeways that have been damaged over time. And maybe most effective of all, we can protect refugia that already exist. There are small pockets tucked into every corner. Boycott what you don't believe in. Refuse to participate in what is wrong. There is hope in this, an attention that notices and celebrates thriving where it occurs, a conscience that refuses to destroy it. This is integrity, I tell my students, which is whole, which is healthy, 
which is holy. This is consistency of belief and action, and that is the answer to powerlessness, to do what you think is right, knowing that your actions will be the wellspring of the new world. From these sheltered pockets of moral imagining and from the protected pockets of flourishing, new ways of living will spread across the land, across the salt plains and beetle-killed forests. Here is how we will start anew, not from the edges over centuries of invasion, rather from small pockets of good work, shaped by an understanding that all life is interdependent and driven by the one gifts human have that belongs to no other, practical imagination, the ability to imagine that things can be different from what they are now. Your calling, the philosopher Frederick Buechner said, is at the intersection of your great joy and the world's deepest need. Your calling is at the intersection of your great joy and the world's deepest need. Go to that place, I tell my students. Do that work. Thank you very much. Check out the Radio EcoShock website. We're at ecoshock.org. I'm Alex Smith for Radio EcoShock. You know, I record a lot of speeches and listen to many more. This talk by Dr. Kathleen Dean Moore of Oregon State University is in my top three for the best speech of 2012. The title was, It's Wrong to Wreck the World, Climate Change and the Moral Obligation to the Future. The presentation was organized by Simon Fraser University in their Continuing Studies in Science and Environment program. This recording is by Alex Smith. After the radio broadcast, you can download a free MP3 of this program from our website at ecoshock.org. Find out more about Kathleen Dean Moore at her blog at riverwalking.com. Her latest book, a collection of 1,500 short essays about our obligation to the future, is called Moral Ground, Ethical Action for a Planet in Peril. Thank you so much for listening. (music) 